Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. This episode is Abdominal Pain in Children, Episode 1, Serious Causes. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello everyone, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teaching fellow... Uh, in emergency medicine, I'm delighted that once again my favourite paediatrician in the world, Dr. Colin Gilhooley, has come down to join us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jamie. Thanks for having Good me. Good afternoon, again. Colin. Very smart again in your shirt and chinos. Well, I'm trying to make the most of it. I'm sure uh, in a few weeks when uh, my child arrives, I probably won't be quite so smart anymore. So, paediatrician, soon to be parent, yes. soon to be consultant. Amazing. Uh, in this episode, um, this is part one of our trilogy of abdominal pain in children. Indeed, it And uh, in this episode, we are looking at the serious, must-not-miss um, causes of abdominal pain. Yeah. Uh, how often is it, do you think, in your day-to-day, you'll see some a, 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 a child with serious uh, pathology causing abdominal um, pain? So I think, in terms of suspecting it, uh, probably see it... Um, Perhaps uh, every one to two shifts, we'll probably yeah. I'll probably see someone who I'm a bit more concerned about. Uh, but having a, a positive diagnosis or someone who's significantly unwell when they come in uh, is slightly rarer. Mm. Um, that's probably to do with the fact that we we've got quite good uh, in terms of seeing people going quickly uh, and people presenting uh, quite early on in their illness means we probably see them mm. see them quite early. So it's about having these. Um these pathologies in our mind it's about then knowing what things to look out for the red flags and then knowing who to call absolutely yeah so i think that's the thing i think abdominal pain is so so common in children um that sometimes it can feel like a bit of a a needle in a haystack Mm. and so every time that i see or anytime anyone's seeing abdominal pain in children it's important to understand what the worrying things are and the things you don't want to miss and ways of, of being able to stratify them. So like you said, red flags, the way they present, uh, mm. and then the age of mm. the child as well, because obviously mm. we know that um, in different age groups will have different potential yeah. pathologies. Yeah, and as you said, very common, and you know, I think we all remember, <laughs> I can't go to school today, I've got a tummy ache. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, there. we've yeah. all been there, haven't we? I've got a tummy ache, and, and off you go, and you, you know, and sifting those patients from a patient to, you know, who needs to see a surgeon absolutely so um, as a lot of things with with paediatrics we're going to look at the age group so we're going to look at our neonatal uh, patient we're going to look at our patient one month to two years and then we're going to look at our patient over two years and and look at the the serious causes of abdominal pain that those age groups will present with Uh, so we'll go in chronological order we will tackle well not literally tackle the neonate start at the beginning start at the beginning the less than one month old uh, what uh, are the, the never never miss uh, pathologies in this age group so I guess in, in my mind Jamie there's three that um, I don't don't ever want to miss uh, one's malrotation uh, the second would be an incarcerated hernia uh, and the third which is probably the rarest of the three would be necrotizing enterocolitis when I say the rarest of the three it's, I think it's important for me to pull out we're talking about in the emergency department here yeah so all the neonatologists out there can relax um, <laughs> i know it's very common on your units um but it's not common in the patient population that we see okay um so i guess uh malrotation is probably the one to start with yeah um so uh from that point of view uh looking at malrotation uh, we probably need to take a a look through embryology to start with 
everyone's yeah. favourite. Absolutely. So I'm sure you remember Jamie in medical school. Intimately. Yeah. First year, first about, semester. And they were talking about the gut and how it exits through the umbilicus, yeah. rotates 270 degrees, and then goes back into the abdomen. Um, and that process uh, obviously extends the mesenteries that all of the um, gut is on. Um, however, it doesn't quite rotate like that in everyone. Right. And that malrotation... Clues in the name. ...can lead to a shortened mesentery, which can then... Uh, the gut can then rotate on okay. and can cause an interruption in the blood supply. Sure. An obstruction and a volvulus. Uh, and so about 50% of children with malrotation who are going to present, present before the age of one month. Okay. Okay. Uh, and they normally present, given that they've just essentially got a bowel obstruction now, uh, with vomiting, abdominal distension, uh, and generally not looking very well. So okay. they'll, they'll often be in pain. Yeah. Tachycardic, might be third spacing into their gut, so there might be some fluid concerns, um, which might make them slightly hemodynamically compromised and so you have to have this diagnosis in your head as I say most commonly they present with quite a hard abdomen upset crying or lethargic is it tympanic like in adults or is it, it more can be it yeah. can be the, the difficulty here is knowing most commonly it's a mid gut volvulus that okay. occurs um, uh, but it can be in slightly different areas um, but it is a life-threatening condition and it needs effective management so it needs a pediatric surgical consultation Mm. Um, bowels not open as well? Bowels will often not open, not passing any flatus at all. And depending on its location, you can get and how long it's been there for, uh, the vomiting may be bilious or non bilious. Sure. Just a big note there bilious vomiting is always a red flag feature, especially in neonates. If you tell a paediatric surgeon that a neonate has bilious vomiting, you will get their attention very quickly. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so there's a there's a Colin Gilhooly uh, top tip, isn't it? <laughs> I, would, I would suggest you only do it when they have it. Have it, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. Just, don't don't say for everyone. Obviously, yeah. you'll. Oh, she might quickly. be the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and it's important to remember, bilious vomiting is green, and it's really green. It's not yellow. It's green, and green. that might seem green. That might seem like a very obvious thing to say, but it's a very important thing to say. Okay, um, and so they need uh, urgent treatment. They're a group who, if you are really suspecting it, um, in terms of looking for a vulvaness, obviously a simple abdominal film will give you that. Sure. Um, but what they will need is is most likely a contrast study. Okay. Um, important things to note for those working in the Nottingham region is that paediatric radiology do not provide an out-of-hours service. Um, so these children are likely to need to be transferred either to Sheffield or Leicester for their contrast study. Okay, if out of hours. Uh, for out of hours. Um, so it's just to be aware that that might be necessary. So know your local guidelines exactly. when it comes to this. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. All right, but the paediatric surgeons will be able to facilitate all of that because they'll be aware of what's on offer at that particular time. Okay. Um, and I guess after that, um, looking at uh, neck or necrotizing enterocolitis, mm. uh, which is a common condition in preterm neonates, um, but less common. Hence, neonatologists will see it quite a lot. Indeed, indeed. And they will be very clear on the signs and symptoms of what it might be. But for those of us working in the emergency department or other settings with term babies, term babies rarely develop neck. Mm -hmm. um, it can be more prominent in babies who've been born preterm who may have been discharged home and may only be close to their 
due date, so their corrected age is around term, they may, they are slightly more at risk. All right. And children will generally present with vomiting, abdominal distension, generally tender abdomen, uh, but may become systemically quite unwell, so they might have trouble with their breathing, be lethargic, poor feeding, maybe even some temperature instability. It's important to point out that, that necks are multifactorial in its uh, in its causes. So I was going to say what what causes. Uh, it's 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 something that's been widely studied uh, oh. by neonatologists all over. Um, Brilliant. People looking at uh, is it to do with the blood supply? Is it to do with gut bacteria? Is it to do with the rate of feeding? And no one's quite a hundred percent sure. It's certainly it's clear that it's multifactorial motor motor. So there must be some genetic component. Maybe some something to do with the blood supply there maybe something to do with it, an infective cause or the gut flora and fauna which is very different uh, in children who are born and brought up in hospital um, and so what you get is intestinal necrosis and bleeding uh, which obviously causes an ileus affecting the vomiting mm. um, and it can be managed medically with intravenous antibiotics with a child being nil by mouth uh, but does sometimes need surgery uh, for a section of the of the affected parts exactly yeah. that Jamie yeah absolutely mm. um, so again it's an emergency because it can make them very systemically unwell mm. uh, and if you're thinking about it again get the paediatric surgeons to come and review the child as well mm. get an abdominal x-ray can be useful um, but it's only useful if you know what you're looking for Okay. Uh, and I would say that you have to be experienced in terms of what you're looking for so, so it won't look like a toxic megacolon in adults no, or nothing like that the no. key thing that you're looking for in the early stages of neck is something called intramural air so uh, actually looking to see if there looks like there's small amounts of air within the bowel wall itself it's like an emphysema that you might see yeah because yeah. of bacterial action okay. um, yeah. but it can be quite subtle um, and it can be difficult. There are other signs that go on because mm. with this, if you've got ne- uh, necrosis of the gut, you can obviously get perforation. If you get perforation, you get free air in the abdomen. So look for all the normal places that you'd look for free air, including the biliary tree. Mm. Um, and so, as I say, it's a surgical emergency, so they should come down and have a look at the child. doesn't mean the child necessarily needs surgery, but you do need a paediatric surgeon. And again, I suppose you're not necessarily saying... I have confirmed a diagnosis of neck here. Correct. You are saying I have a very poorly neonate who neck is one of my differentials, differentials. and you need to come down and review. Exactly. So I think in that stage you might have this tender abdomen. You'd still be thinking malrotations in your list of differentials. Yeah. Uh, and as with neonates, always think of sepsis. Yeah. Um, so whilst we're talking about abdominal pain and acute abdominal conditions that are life threatening. Um, these children, if you've got malrotation or neck, you'd be at risk of translocation, perforation, and sepsis as a result of that. So GI sepsis would be something mm. that you would need to cover and treat. Mm. And both of those conditions would need to be managed uh, with IV axis, IV fluids, IV antibiotics. Okay. Get out your yellow cannula. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, finally, our third part of our neonate uh, trilogy. Yeah, so the incarcerated inguinal hernia. So inguinal hernias uh, are more common in preterm neonates um, but can occur in in, uh, neonates of any age usually present with an irritable infant who's crying screaming difficult to console Sure. Uh, and parents may well have noticed a swelling either Mm. in the inguinal region or in the the scrotum or the the labia majora if it extends down and through to there Um, obviously when you see them you'll be doing similar things so you'll find a child who's distressed, upset and in pain 
maybe tachycardic as a result of that crying difficult to console mm. um, depending on the on what's happened obviously if it's incarcerated and there's significant obstruction you might have some abdominal distension loss of bowel sounds um, but what you're looking for is that discrete inguinal mass mm. um, and then as with all masses if it extends into the scrotum you do all the same things that you do in an adult can you get above it can you transluminate it can you feel a testicle separately to it in order to give your diagnosis of a hernia harder to assess coughing pulse in, a, in an very infant very much so very <laughs> much so but what they will be doing is they're likely to be crying and every yeah. time they cry they raise their intracranial pressure uh, intracranial they probably do raise their intracranial <laughs> pressure but more more importantly they raise their intra-abdominal pressure yeah um, so you may well feel something of an impulse and yeah. at that point it's it's key to see if you can reduce it or not yeah and if you can reduce it and get it back through the, the inguinal ring then that's great it's reducible if you can't then again surgical uh, review is needed and they will often come down and have a look at it and at that point given that the pain, the child's probably in significant pain they'd probably like to give some good analgesia usually in the form of morphine uh, and then try and reduce it themselves with the child okay. a bit more relaxed when they've got some more uh, morphine on board okay. and I suppose if it's properly incarcerated you may see features of obstruction as well Correct. to go with that as well similar to your mal malrotation symptoms yeah similar to malrotation and um, and as you'd expect exactly the same as an adult you know no bowel signs abdominal distension not passing any flatus and mm. vomiting okay and I suppose if the surgeon can't reduce their in A&E they're going to take them and take them to theatre mm. and reduce it surgically okay so um, moving on from the neonate if we imagine that the neonate with abdominal pain is in one cubicle you're moving on to the next cubicle and the nurse is showing you the chart and they're also in with abdominal pain but this this child is in the bracket of one month to two years yeah so what's what's going through your mind there as the serious so think, never nevers I think obviously neck no longer uh, applies really mm. uh, malrotation could still be presenting later on okay it's important to remember that um, they have there'll be children out there with malrotation there'll be adults out there with malrotation who've never had a problem um, and so it's one of those things that can just develop whenever whenever the gut rotates on its mesentery um, but things uh, that worry me a bit more in this age group um, I guess uh, intersusception is the one that springs to mind mm. so intersusception most people would say the rule of two so from two months to two years uh, children normally present with significant abdominal pain, screaming, inconsolable, comes in waves, but it's when it comes pain, it's severe, it? okay, and obviously it's caused by the gut uh, telescoping into itself, uh, and that can cause an obstruction, significant pain, interrupt the blood supply to part of the gut, um, and then they start to get some breakdown there, and then you get the traditional features that you would have learned uh, at medical school or read in the test books of things like red currant jelly. Yeah. But I think actually the key features are severe abdominal pain that's intermittent. Um, when the child has it, they're inconsolable, mm. um, and um, they often they may have a tender abdomen, uh, they may not, they may have a mass, they may not, um, but it's difficult. The key features are that recurrent severe abdominal pain that will not settle. So will the child have periods of inconsolable crying and then be fine? So they can be in between the episodes, they can yeah. be absolutely completely fine, which can make it really challenging. Sometimes they might not be fine, they might be really lethargic during those periods or tired. Um, and sometimes they may have vomiting, other times they might not. Um, so it does make the diagnosis challenging, but I think it's, it's the degree and the severity of the pain that, uh, sure. that gives it away. 
Sure. And so think away from that classic triad of the mass plus colicky yeah. pain plus red currant jelly. Yeah. Think the inconsolable, the severe pain, that colicky pain. Yeah. Have that in your differential list. Absolutely. Okay, Uh So into susception. Yeah. After that. Um, I guess one thing we didn't really talk about in the neonatal one, but it, it could present then or it could present slightly later, is Hirschsprung's disease. Yeah. So Hirschsprung's disease, uh, obviously um, a problem with the uh, nerve supply, usually to the, the lower part of the, of the gut, uh, which results in there being no innervation to that part, uh, and so is unable to, to move and to, to move fluids through. So. Sure. Uh, most most stuff moves through the gut up until that point absolutely fine but on its final descent out of the body uh, there's nothing to push and move it through and so children present uh, severe abdominal pain constipation which is very severe uh, and then a sudden explosion of stool and then go back to that constipation uh, so is that like an overflow diarrhea really it's just because it's so much there it's so much there it builds up it builds up and builds up until it just comes kind of is able to get through that de-innovated or bit that doesn't have any innovation mm. uh, the key thing with these children is with that they're unlikely to have ever had a normal bowel habit this is likely to be something that's caused a problem ongoing mm. from very early on because that part of the gut has never been innovated so there's a few key questions you can ask here and one of them is when did they pass meconium Mm. Uh, because obviously babies should pass meconium in the first 24 hours of life so meconium is the black tarry like stool the first stool that babies produce after they're born um, so that should happen within the first 24 hours delayed passage, passage of meconium is common in children with Hirschsprung's disease and so that's something in the history that can give you a good clue Okay, mm. and these children will have always have had uh, a slightly abnormal bowel habit mm. Okay, is it congenital at all do you know? Um, so it does, I believe, run in families mm. um, and is more common uh, in, in parents who've had it. Mm. Um, but the I know it's associated with some syndromes as well. It know. can be. Yeah. It can be. Um, but it's important to note, as with many things, while it is associated with some syndromes, the majority of children who have it, I believe, have it in isolation. Okay. And so it's not all, like many things in life, it's not all as simple as it's only the children who have a syndrome. Yeah. And so, um, what would you be doing in A&E then, and once you, you, so you're think, suspecting Hirschsprung? So I think in A&E, uh, you want to assess the child like you assess any other mm-hmm. child, take an ABC approach, mm-hmm. and what you're looking at here is, uh, are they in pain, do you need to give them some analgesia, mm-hmm. are they cardiovascularly stable, or is there significant third spacing into the gut? And the things that, again, you might worry about with that build-up of stool is some translocation. Mm. Um, and so, uh, have they got uh, an enterocolitis type approach? Uh, and important to note is that even post-surgery for Hirschsprungs, um, they still have an increased risk of enterocolitis. Okay. So any child who has Hirschsprungs, pre or post-operatively, who comes in with diarrhea or vomiting or gastro, uh, gastroenteritis type illness, you have to be very careful with them because their risk of enterocolitis is still there even post-operative. Mm. So you have to manage them very carefully because they're at risk of becoming dehydrated very, very quickly. How long does that risk last for? Uh, as to my to my knowledge, I'm not sure that it ever goes away, Jamie. Okay, so, so it's always, always something on the radar. It's always on the radar. It's something that I'm always very careful about when I see a child who's had uh, a repair for Hirschsprung, what's called a pull-through procedure. Mm. Um, but yeah, they can be a challenging group to manage, and as I say, they're normally managed surgically, but after that they can still have some problems with their bowel habit and they're still at risk of um, 
enterocolitis. So hopefully further on you'll be picking that up in your history. Absolutely. Okay, Uh, so moving on from Hirschsprungs, our next uh, thing to worry about. Um, So after that, um, I guess in the kind of up to two year group, they're the main two. You can still have testicular torsion at any age, uh, but it does become more common as you get older. Uh, Certainly something that becomes more common after the age of five. Mm. So I guess if we're moving on, um, I guess the common one that we haven't talked about at all, which is common to everyone, would be appendicitis. Sure. So in terms of appendicitis, again, becomes more common as you're getting older, but can mm. present in this kind of age group from kind of two to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, however, its presentation um, is not quite as um, Easy, typical yeah. as you might expect. So whilst we're all taught at medical school, it's this central abdu- abdominal pain that kind of moves from the umbilicus down to the right iliac fossa associated with rebound tenderness, McBurney's point and guarding. Um, younger children don't unfortunately present quite as straightforward as that um, they often present much more atypically so maybe just generalised abdominal pain vomiting maybe may be the main symptom they often struggle to tell you where the pain is they just know that it hurts guarding is a reliable feature guarding is present then uh, that is a reliable feature but it's important to think that you know we obviously got retrocecal append- appendix Appendix, 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 appendix. Um, singular, yep, yeah, <laughs> um, which obviously present in an atypical fashion as well. So, in yep. the younger age group, it can be a much more broad, but it's important to take the child uh, in front of you to think about how much pain are they in, how much does it hurt, do they look like they're in severe pain, have they got rebound tenderness? Those would be the things that would make you think about it. And obviously, as they get older and they become able to tell you exactly where the pain is give you a bit more history about where the pain was initially those those symptoms of umbilical pain that moves to the right iliac fossa are reliable signs of appendicitis mm. they're just not as common uh, and the typical presentation that we're all taught is not as common in children so you just have to be aware mm. so severe abdominal pain fever yeah no vomiting yeah all of those symptoms have it on you have it on your radar yeah Uh, I guess another thing as they become more mobile to think about is things like trauma. Yeah. So as they start to be able to move around, they run the risk of falling over or falling off of things. Now, one of the things uh, that uh, we worry about in children would be handlebar injuries. Mm -hmm. So that's when they are cycling on their bike, go to fall off, the handlebars turn sideways and the end of the handlebar goes into the abdomen. So you've got a blunt force trauma over a small area into the abdomen, which can produce a significant force uh, and cause significant injuries depending on the location that it impacts on. So there's been some work done on that in terms of children across the country looking at risk factors. So um, the force itself, how fast they were going, whether there are rubber grips on the edge of the handlebars or not makes a difference. So if there are not, that increases the risk. Uh, the degree of bruising around the site that you can see externally um, and if you see a child who's fallen off their bike, handlebars have turned sideways, gone into their abdomen, you have to be very careful with them um, because they can present with minimal symptoms to start with mm. but may of cause themselves a significant injury. In the so again, thinking liver lack, spleen. Yeah, depending, spleen yeah. and the other, the other area is the, the pancreas and Duodenum. So if it goes into the epigastrium, um, those areas are at risk. And so we've seen children there who have small perforations in the duodenum 
uh, as the Americans like to say. Uh, <laughs> or duodenum if you speak English. Yes. Or the, uh, or the pancreas uh, can occasionally be, be damaged as well. And because of those locations, they can often be, be slow in terms of their presentation. So you've got these slow leaks from the perforation, uh, which can present several days down the line. Um, so if there's any concerns at all, I think a surgical review is, is definitely needed in the in the emergency department. Okay. Um, would any imaging be done in the emergency department? So I think if there's significant concern, um, then the modality of choice would usually be a CT scan, given the nature of the types of injuries and how subtle they can be. Occasionally ultrasounds are done, um, and if, if you're particularly worried about the liver or the spleen, and you've got an experienced uh, sonographer, um, then they are likely to be able to see uh, significant injuries. Sure. And obviously there's differences in terms of liver and spleen injuries in children in that they rarely are taken to theatre for surgical intervention. They are managed much more conservatively than those of their adults. Um, because in children we know that if you leave them alone, they generally tend to get better. Okay. Um, so so you're, you're looking generally at their observations as correct. well. Correct. Yeah. So they would just be admitted and observed if sure. there's any concerns sure. about that. I suppose um, we kids, as they get older, they may be at risk also of foreign bodies as well. Yeah, absolutely. So foreign bodies, and I think that's something that's probably been in the news quite a bit recently. We've all seen the talk of batteries. Yes, into a hearing dream. They do yeah. a campaign every Christmas about because obviously parents are buying toys. They buy batteries and yeah. about the risks of in, of um, uh, consuming batteries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and do you know what batteries we worry about? Button batteries. Button batteries, excellent. Okay, and so... I learn well from him. Fantastic. <laughs> and why do we worry about them? Do you know? Like it'll be something to do with their shape. This is like a Viva. It'll be something to do with their shape that they can go sideways and cause yeah, an so obstruction. Yeah, so how close the, um, the positive and negative, or the cation and the anion are to each other, which means that they can easily be activated. So if you swallow a button battery and it gets stuck in your esophagus, and it's up against the esophageal wall, it's actually quite easy for it to be activated and then burn through the tissue there with the energy that's being produced. Um, so everyone who swallows a button battery uh, will be x-rayed, okay? Now, most foreign bodies in the emergency department with children, we do not x-ray. We only x-ray if we're concerned it's stuck in the esophagus or in the airway. So most of them wouldn't, but button batteries would all be x-rayed. Make sure that hopefully they're past the pylorus of the stomach, because once they're past there, they're unlikely to cause any problems and are likely to come out. If we x-ray them and they're stuck in the esophagus, that's a surgical emergency. If it's in the stomach, um, then there are various different uh, guidelines about what to do here. What we do in Nottingham is if the child is asymptomatic, otherwise completely well, uh, we would send them home with careful safety netting advice for the signs of possible perforation or obstruction mm -hmm. and tell them to come back for that immediately. Otherwise, they'd return in two days' time for a repeat review and a repeat x-ray to make sure it exited the stomach, i.e. gone through the pylorus. So they come back to A&E here? Correct, yeah. Okay. Um, excellent. So, button batteries beware. Button batteries, and there's one other one other foreign body we worry about, but only if you have only if you ingest more than one of them. Um, so it's magnets. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. So because if you swallow magnets and they are not together and they move to different parts of the gut and then they are attracted to each other, there's a risk of perforation. And there are case reports of this, but again, it's very rare. 
So multiple magnets we uh, would be concerned about and we would speak to the surgical team about because of the risk of perforation. Other than that, foreign bodies are largely um, not something to worry about as long as the child's not coughing, choking, spluttering, showing no signs of airway obstruction or of esophageal obstruction, then we would uh, be very relaxed about the majority of them and manage them conservatively. Okay. Um, so moving on then maybe to our patients in the next cubicle there's somebody else in the next cubicle yeah. who's over five years old over five year old who's so also in the abdominal pain what red flags are going through your mind what, so what here um, you uh, would be looking about lots of the things that you would look at in an adult or in a younger child so you know have they got ab have they got signs of abdominal obstruction um, what's in that history that makes you worried you know where's the pain location how has it changed so appendicitis is still up there and becomes more common with increasing age um, and so all the signs that we talked about before, right leg, fossil pain, guarding, rebound, McBurney's point, do occur. But as I said before, in children, don't expect them to be typical because they will surprise you and they'll catch you out. So if you think they've got reasonable signs of peritoneal irritation, uh, then appendicitis has to be on your list of, of differentials. Mm. Trauma is still there, foreign bodies are still there, all the same ones that we've talked about. Um, and then I guess as they're getting older into those teenage years, um, especially in females, uh, then the female reproductive system becomes something that can present and so ovarian torsion can present. It's reasonably rare but it's incredibly painful and will mimic uh, the signs and symptoms of appendicitis. Mm. So just be aware of. And so those patients maybe would be, may be sent towards a surgeon and then yeah. ultimately a, 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 the appendicitis is ruled out. Yeah, and, and and then testicular torsion, uh, which we haven't really touched on. Yeah. Um, so obviously presents with severe pain. It's embarrassing, and we're often dealing with uh, young adolescents here who are embarrassed by this, and so might just say they've got tummy ache, when actually what they mean is that they've got testicular pain. So that tells you something about what to do in the history. Is always ask for it. Always ask about testicular pain when taking a history of abdominal pain, and in examination always examine the testicles okay there is never a reason not to okay and um, we have as I'm sure many places around the country had incidents where this has been missed as a result so um, it's important okay um, as we all know the longer your testicles torted with a lack of blood supply the increased likelihood that it is going to be dead time is testicle time is testicle all right, and so these uh, patients will often present with severe testicular pain with a red scrotum, painful, swollen, slightly raised uh, testicle, um, and um, I can't remember what they say, was it a bell? Uh, bell clapper testicle. Bell clapper testicle, that's what the textbooks say. Um, and obviously the key thing here is this is a surgical emergency. The patient should be in theatre within one hour, uh, and so get the paediatric surgeons down to see them as soon as possible so again if you're saying to them nice and early in your s-bar handover i've got a patient who i think has a testicular torsion before you're even saying anything else you've got that uh, you've yes. got his or her attention the, exactly. the the surgeon yeah exactly okay and from that point of view obviously there are differentials there like a torted hydatid of morgani mm. um and other things but the thing that we worry about is testicular torsion and that's the thing not to so I think this is a lot of having that low suspicion index. If we're seeing these th things that we're making us worried, we're not worried if we're right or wrong. 
we are just getting in touch to our colleagues upstairs that there is a child here I don't like the look of this yeah and you know it may well not be but if it is we, we need to rule it out exactly yeah. exactly Meckles diverticulum yeah so Meckles uh, we all learned about it in medical school 2% of the population yeah rule of yeah rule of twos yeah yeah so that's something all the twos and obviously it does present in children but it is reasonably rare but there's the potential uh, for children to be significantly aware with it as well um, it's not something we see commonly um, children will often have had intermittent abdominal pain in the past but they may now present with severe abdominal pain blood in the stool um, abdominal distension vomiting uh, and can potentially be quite unwell mm. but obviously it is a surgical emergency because it needs to be surgically removed mm. so two foot from the ilium is that right? so yeah just, just <laughs> college just rapidly see me google um, yeah two percent of the population two feet of the ileocecal valve yeah. two inches in length uh, two types of mucosa and presentation before the age of two yeah so again so that's one that uh, they will often present quite early with and I guess overarching this, we've talked about very specific abdominal conditions here, Jamie. I guess there are there are some that present with intra-abdominal pain, like in that are on, oncological in nature, so hepatosplenomegaly mm. or abdominal masses, which might present with abdominal pain as well, which purposely haven't gone over too much here. So speaking of on, on, oncologists, I suppose one of the most common... Some, um what I remember from, from med school would be uh, the Wilms tumour. So Wilms tumour or a nephroblastoma uh, is, is commonly presents around the age of kind of 1 to 18 months. Purposely I haven't gone through it too much, Jamie, because obviously it can present in various different ways. It might just be the mass, the child might be generally unwell. Um, and it is something that's obviously not very common in the wider uh, community that you will see, um, but certainly having an oncology unit, paediatric oncology unit here, it's something that we we do see reasonably frequently. Mm. Interestingly, if you go through the natural history of a lot of these things, some of them, so they did a screening program for um, for these, I think, in Japan, um, and then started to surgically operate on them all, and it made no difference to survival. And that's because a proportion of these will self-resolve. Ah, really? Yes. So we so, may have had a Wilms tumour and not known it. Well, yeah. So that's an interesting thing about screening programmes, uh, which is probably for another talk, about actually it has to has to make a difference to outcomes. Yeah. It shows you that it's not worth doing. Yeah, so oncology is there as well, Jamie. I purposely haven't gone through it. And there are obviously other multiple emergencies that present with abdominal pain, but that are not ab- uh, located in the abdomen. Mm. And I'm sure we can cover them. Uh, in, another part, in another part of the trilogy excellent exactly. so I think that concludes episode one yes the phantom menace of, <laughs> of, of abdominal pain uh, was there anything else you wanted to cover no I think, that's I, think, yeah. I think the summary is just that uh, the signs and symptoms are the same as in adults they mm. can just be slightly harder to mm. elicit uh, given the, the younger age of the patients um, but keep your eyes out remember that uh, presentations vary with age and the conditions vary with age Mm. and know which ones you're thinking about when you see them and no pun intended listen to your gut if it's telling you something's wrong then get some help absolutely thank you very much Colin thank you thank you that was the take orally um, abdominal pain in children episode one serious causes podcast Um, you can find uh, more information at takeorally.com 
Take Orally is also on Facebook and Twitter where you can get in touch and uh, see uh, links to any information mentioned. Um, don't forget you can also find NUH Dream on both uh, Facebook and Twitter for more information on research and education opportunities within uh, emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma.